Thrill Me. This show is part of the Thrill Me Podcast Network. Experience more on Facebook and YouTube. Welcome, ghouls, to the Crypt of Horror, dedicated to Tales from the Crypt. Now here is your undead host, Mr. Wonderful. What's this? Am I back in the crypt? Is this the Crypt of Horror? What's going on? Mr. Wonderful, so happy to be back with you now on the Thrill Me Podcast Network Patreon page, where we get to talk every single episode of the Tales from the Crypt old television show that you can't find on HBO Max. No, 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 no. You can find it not even on a Blu-ray. No, 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 no. You can only find it throughout the internet where people have thankfully uploaded episodes, which I hope that you are able to watch the episodes that we talk about. Uh, We'll get into the the episodes this week here in a second, although if you see the title, you know that we're getting what you know, we're getting episodes five and six of season four because we're picking up where we left off. We're not going back to the beginning, but if you're a part of the Patreon right now listening to this, then hopefully you are rejoining the program after the little hiatus we've taken in the uh, rebranding of creating something bigger than what we were originally doing with just Haunters Podcast and the Patreon. Now, so many great shows, so many great personalities, so many podcasts added into the Thrill Me Podcast Network now, and we are producing content for you all here at our Patreon as well as out there, uh, not behind the Patreon wall. You all right now, you the super fans, and we love you for that. So thank you for being a part of this. But uh, if you have not listened to the previous episodes, well, go back. They're all available for you right now. So you can hear every episode from the beginning of this show till right now, season four, episodes five and six. And just wanted to let you know if you are new to this show and you're just jumping in right here because you don't have to start at the beginning. You can watch episodes five and six, listen to this right now, and then go back and start doing the re the revisits, the whole purpose of this show. But I do want to make it up front right now. If you're new to this, uh, there, this is spoiler heavy, baby. You you beyond you paying for this stuff now. So we gonna spoil. We gonna talk about it. We gonna dissect the episodes. And it's hard to talk about a show like Tales from the Crypt and no pun intended here, be cryptic with a review. So let's get into it. We are in season four, nineteen ninety two, summertime and living's easy. Got the Crypt Keeper on the HBO, oh, oh, so episodes five and six, we'll start with episode five, Beauty Rest, which was released on July 11th in 1992. This was an episode uh, directed by a name that you should recognize, Stephen Hopkins. You should recognize that name because we've already talked about Stephen Hopkins as far as Abra Cadaver, that episode back in 1991, so he's... Not a noob to Tales from the Crypt. This is his second of what would go on to be three episodes directed, but he is also the director of A Nightmare on Elm Street 5, The Dream Child, Predator 2, uh, Lost in Space. Yeah, I bring that up. Oh, and The Ghost in the Darkness. He did that as well. He was a part of 24. So, you know, get you reacquainted with with, with his body of work. Uh, So, yeah, we have a director that knows Tales from the Crypt. He's in Stephen Hopkins. Uh, This episode stars Mimi Rogers. Yes, the Mimi Rogers, Austin Powers fame. Yeah, I went there. But yeah, Mimi Rogers stars in this one. Uh, you also have Jennifer Rubin. 
Jennifer Rubin from the Doors movie. Uh, she was Taryn in A Nightmare on Elm Street 3, which that was an awesome moment in the episode where I was like, yo, that looks like my girl Taryn right there. And then I did the quick look up and was like, it is my girl Taryn. Uh, and then uh, Kathy Ireland is in this as well. Uh, Lucy Draper, Necessary Roughness, uh, Lethal, or not Lethal, Loaded Weapon 1, she was in that. So you got a strong female cast here. Uh, and this episode opens up, we enter the crypt, where the crypt keeper is all like, Hello, kitties, what's new? <laughs> uh, he was in the middle of doing a deadly dozen. Uh, he does some pull-ups, because he's working out in this one. He's getting in shape, he's working on his fitness making his puns, uh, you know. And the setup for this episode uh, is that we're going into an episode talking about uh, a young actress, the ambition of a young actress who's looking for her big break. Will she make it? Only her scare dresser knows for sure. Uh, and he calls this little tale dismal, or this dismal drama, uh, Beauty Rest. And we enter into it, and that's where we get introduced to a model, Helen, that's Mimi Rogers. Uh, we realize that she's getting older. She has the dreams of hitting it big time. They're starting to dry out. She thinks her big break uh, is when she's filming the commercial called Ball Buster. She, that's, how the sh that's how the episode opens, is her doing her lines, the director being like, oh, babe, you are ball buster. You are the face. You're the person I want. But she ends up losing that rollout to her roommate, Joyce, a much younger woman. Uh, Helen then becomes a little unhinged, starts to kind of lose her mind. She's like, I'm just going to eat this pizza. I'm going to eat the ice cream. I'm going to eat everything in here. Uh, and accuses her roommate of being like, listen, why is it every time I'm up for a role, you swoop in there and you bang the director and you get this role like enough. Let me have a career. Stop sleeping with the director. So she's accusing her roommate of sleeping with the director in order to get the role from her. Uh, and, and it's happened a few times now. So she gets a little unhinged uh, and finds out through Joyce that Joyce got a letter instructing that an upcoming beauty pageant is rigged, that she's going to be the winner. And that's when Helen is like, what the hell? The guy, Tom, that you are dating and you've been hooking up with is now rigging a beauty pageant for you after you just slept with the director of the commercial that I was going to be my, my break and I was finally going to get a role and get noticed and you keep stealing everything and now you're getting this as well. Oh, I really hate you. So that's when she comes up with a plan to grab it for herself. She spikes a pot of tea with some sleeping pills to knock Joyce out so that she misses the pageant. Helen returns to Joyce's room, relaxed, acting remorseful, putting on them acting skills. She was very thespian. Uh, Mimi Rogers, good actress. Uh, so she's apologizing for the earlier tantrum. Joyce accepts the apology. Uh realizing that it's not easy to accept rejection. However, she starts drinking the spiked tea. That's when Helen is asking her the questions like, so this this beauty pageant, you know, what what do you become the face of with this? Like, what's the product? And she's like, I don't even know what the product is. Like, which just is one of those like, you know, it's Tales from the Crypt. So when you hear that, it's supposed to come across as a little more of a slap in the face of like, you know, I don't even know what I'm getting apart for now. But 
It's Mine, where having watched you know four seasons of the show at this point, um, you know that that matters a little bit more than the lean into it, so to say. Uh, this is going to come into play. Of course it will. Why wouldn't it? She doesn't know what she's even going to, you know, be the face of for this beauty pageant. So they keep having the conversation and eventually the spike T starts to kick in. She falls into a coma and dies. Helen is just totally unaware that it would have caused this type of reaction in Joyce's body. So she's all freaking out. She did not intend to kill her roommate, but realizes that now is her chance to take the letter. They didn't mention Joyce by name. The letter just said, hey, George, or yeah, George, make this girl, uh, you know, make her the winner. Like one of those things that was just like, hey, she's the winner. Make her the winner, man. Like make her wildest dreams come true. And even the way that the letter was written is in such a way that it's like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, it's Tales from the Crypt. What's going to be the, where, where are we going with this? What's going to be the twist, all right? What's the face of the company? What's the company? What's going on here? Uh, so she grabs the letter, but Helen has to cover her tracks with her roommate's body just laying there on the bed, Joyce. So she conjures up a little, oh, there's no evidence of foul play that the police can find. I'll just write a little suicide note put the sleeping pills in her hand, start to kind of trace my tracks, yada, 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 moving on. Fine, it's just, I covered this one up. Now let me go, win this beauty pageant. Stealing it right out from under the roommate I just killed. Uh, So she's covered her tracks, she heads on, goes off to the beauty pageant. That's when she runs into uh, Jennifer Rubin. And Jennifer Rubin's playing a character, Drusilla, who is talking to George, the guy that, you know, is running this beauty pageant. And she's like, so what's the, you know, she's asking a ton of questions as well, of like how this is going to work. What's this all for? Yada, yada, yada. And that's when Helen comes in with this letter that was intended for Joyce. As for George, goes, talks to George. Um, Jennifer Rubin is overhearing the whole like, oh, well, now that we know who the winner is, it makes it easier for the end. We want to see what your costume is. Boom, 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 boom. So she then confronts Helen in her dressing room and is like, I know what you did. It's bet, you know, you old hag sleeping with the director. So now she's being accused for the thing she was accusing her roommate of. Little does, uh, you know, Drusilla know that that Helen uh, actually murdered her roommate, Joyce, didn't sleep with the director or anybody running this pageant, just decided, you know what? My roommate, you know, I, I took her out. She was sleeping with everybody else. So it's 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 a fun little turn now for the obvious reason of, all right, all right here we go. Here we go. It's starting to go bad for Helen. Uh, and then Helen goes out there. The beauty pageant's going on. She goes up for her her question. And the question is, uh, what's something that you um, regret? What's, what's something, you know, like one of those questions that instantly is like, what do you mean? How, why did you ask me that? What the hell? She gives a good answer. And she's like, and and she quotes something that George said earlier where George was like, hey, it's all about what's inside that matters. And, and we're really going to, you know, you're going to be the face of what's inside you. That's what the people really want to know is what's inside you. So she makes a comment of it doesn't really matter, you know, what regrets we all have. It really just matters of the type of person you are and who you are on the inside. 
And they're like, oh, what a great answer. But we come to find out after she, you know, goes back to her spot and they're getting ready to start doing the judging to announce the winner, quote unquote, because we know it's supposed to be Helen. Uh, we find out that her that that she goes up to George and is like, what the hell with that question? And he's like, we need to talk. Tell it rips up the letter. It is like this letter never happened. Yada, yada, yada. Like, you're not the winner. It's not this. It's not that. Boom, boom, boom. That's when Helen's like, oh, I know what just happened. So she goes and she confronts Drusilla in in the dressing room and she's like, I know what you did. You're a pretty big hypocrite. You slept with the director to get it from me now. And she's like, no, I didn't sleep with the director. I just promised him that if this wasn't in the up and up, we would I would file harassment lawsuits and and one of those things to where like you see it registers with Helen that it wasn't something she could ever even think of doing. And she's like, oh, wow. That was an, uh, that was a thing I could have done and had a career and this younger, hotter than me person just totally upended that with logic. Um, but at the same time, Helen is holding behind her back a nice little rope, a handkerchief, scarf, so that she can kill Drusilla. So they keep having their back and forth and she's like, yeah, well, you know, you're the type of, and Drusilla's like, you're the type of woman, Helen, that would sleep with the director to get the role. Boom, boom, boom. And she's like, no, I'm not that type of woman. And she's like, oh, yeah, well, what type of woman are you? And she's like, I'm the type of woman that would kill for my role and proceeds to choke Jennifer Rubin to death, uh, hides her body as well. George comes back in and he's like, where'd she go? Where'd Drusilla go? Because Drusilla was supposed to now be the new winner. And she's like, I don't know. She just left. She said that little lawsuit thing, not an issue. I'm out of here. So I guess I can be your winner. And he's like, oh, that's great. Well, follow me. He then leads Helen into a room where, you know, she's supposed to be getting her makeup or so you think. She sits down at a table. Guy starts looking her over, starts doing the makeup. At it, and she's like, what's going on here, George? I can handle my own makeup. And that's when the uh, reveal starts to come that um, George is about to inject her with some green thing. You don't know exactly what he's using. Uh, and that's when Helen starts to realize, oh, no, uh, the role that I've just killed two people for uh, is not a role I want and is now being injected with something and is screaming and calling for help. And then we cut back. We don't know what's happened to Helen yet. We see the needle getting close and all of that and hear the screams. And then we cut back and we see George is out there on the stage and he's now doing the whole pageantry song. And he's like, it only matters what's on the inside. And you see Helen is, as as the curtains come apart, you see Helen's up there somewhere. She's standing in front of uh, a lighting and she's got this nice dress on. And you're like, all right, well, we see Helen's face, but she's not reactive to anything. And then quickly you start to say, well, not quickly, quickly, but slowly they start to unveil uh, as, as part of, it, it's more or less like a curtain that proceeds to now open up. And you see that she has just been, opened up on the inside as coming down from the ceiling is what we finally realize she is the face of and what the award show is all about. And it's an autopsy award show. So she's Miss Autopsy of the year and just opened up a really gory graphic image at the end. And that's what she ended up killing for a role that killed her. Brings us back to the closing segment where... Uh, you have the Crypt Keeper, good old Helen, talk about an opening night. Now that's what I call a 
horrid body. Well, I got to get back to my workout, kitties. Oh, I love that burn. Uh, but yeah, overall, a really fun episode. This is kind of like the episode that John Lovitz did in the, uh, I believe it was a season ago that we talked about, uh, where it, it, it plays similar to that, but more in the reversal of the characters with the actor that keeps losing out the roles, eventually snaps and is at the point of, I will kill for the role that I need, only to find out that the role that they are killing for by the person that keeps getting handed, that, that they keep losing out and keeps getting what they want, that the role that they ended up getting was a role that leads to their death and leads to their demise. So it's very similar in that in that Lovitz episode. Uh, and just like the Lovitz one, I, I, I enjoy this one a lot. Uh, I think this is a really good, fun episode. There's a lot going on in it. The the buildup to the to the Miss Autopsy Award show of 1992, uh, seeing that is really just a graphic, fun little move. Uh, and and I do, I dig this episode. It's it's a fun episode, worth a watch if you haven't seen this one in a while. Hopefully, you watched it before I just spoiled the entire thing for you because now you're gonna be like, oh man, that was the ending. And sorry, that's comes with the show. Uh, a little trivia in the closing segment: the Crypt Keeper is seeing working out uh, with two bones attached and a skull on uh, both end as well to kind of make like uh, the dumbbell uh, barbell. Uh, it was the same workout tool used in the opening for the Switch, which was an episode we talked about a few seasons back, uh, 1990, season two, episode two. Uh, that was so, you know, little... Little little tie in there with that. Uh, little little pull, little call back there for the Crypt Keeper. All right, moving on to the uh, next episode this week. This is one of my favorites. I have been very excited to get to this one. It is called What's Cooking, Episode 6, Season 4, released July 22nd, 1992. The comic source was Haunt of Fear, number 12. Uh, oh, yeah. I forgot to... Um, mention that uh for the last episode so yeah the last episode that we talked about uh that came from vault of horror number 35 so that's where that one came from so all right back to what's cooking uh haunt of fear number 12 uh this one plot involves a married couple fred and irma's restaurant uh they've seen better days but things start to change once a stranger walks in with a rather unique steak recipe Getting into this one, I just want to get into really straight up. Uh, the director for this one is Gilbert Adler. Now, that is a name that, if you're a Tales from the Crypt fan, this is his first episode, but he will go on to direct another episode, uh, and then he will go on to direct something that we will be talking about here on this show. When we get there in 1996, he was the director of the second Tales from the Crypt film release to theaters, Bordello of Blood, with uh, Dennis Miller there. You know, Mr. Uh, Miller doing the Bordello of Blood thing, being in a Tales from the Crypt episode. You know, sometimes you gotta go from Monday Night Football to the Crypt. The one with the Corey Feldman in it. You know, I 
I was with the vampires in that one, so very excited to get to the Bordello of Blood episode so that I can do this horrible Dennis Miller for you when I talk about that one. But also, uh, I'll just say it right now, got to have a special guest when we talk about Tales from the Crypt presents Demon Knight and Tales from the Crypt presents Bordello of Blood. Uh, Zach Hilton from Zach Speakeasy uh, and Haunter's Podcast is going to be coming on and we're going to have a discussion about those films in a review. But uh, back to what's cooking. I mentioned the director, guy that will become big for Tales from the Crypt uh, and a movie. But the cast for this one is uh, a chef's kiss. You have, as Fred, Superman, Christopher Reeve. You have, as Irma, get ready for this, Jaws 3D's very own. Bess Armstrong. You have for Phil playing the cop, Phil, legendary actor, Art LaFleur, The Sandlot, The Babe, Field of Dreams, The Blob, 1988. The list goes on and on. Oh, yeah. Gotta also throw this out there. As the landlord, Chumley, you got the one and only Meatloaf. Meatloaf. Uh, and then, yeah, rounding out the cast in this one, you also got none other than John Bender himself. That's right. Judd Nelson is in this episode. So it, right there, you got an all-star cast. But this is a really good episode because you're following this failing restaurant, Fred and his wife, Irma. You have Judd Nelson playing Gaston. He's a drifter, part-time busboy. And he has a thing for Emma, or Irma, I'm sorry, I keep saying Emma, Irma. He has a thing for Irma, Reeve's wife. I mean, you know, whatever. He's Judd Nelson. He's a drifter. Sure, why not? Try and hook up with your boss's wife. Why not? You know, getting back into the Miller stuff here. Go for it. Why not, Juddy boy? Uh, but eventually, Judd Nelson's character uh, sees Chumley come into the restaurant uh, because you know that they're having financial issues and he's all like, hey, Fred, you know, what's today? I don't have my money. You said you'd have my money for me yesterday and today clearly isn't yesterday because I still don't have my money. Uh, but Christopher Reeve is holding a knife at this moment and they're having a back and forth and he accidentally, I say accidentally, but in a fit of anger, he does attack Chumley with the knife, causes a little gash. That's when he's like, you know what? I'm going to get the law involved in this and I'm going to uh, file assault charges and, and non-payment of rent. Like you're, you're doubly screwed here, Fred. Uh, but we also at this, you know, before any of that happens, we find out about Gaston's thing for Irma because she's about to leave the restaurant and he's like, Oh, do you want me to walk you home? And she's like, no, nah, I got a gun. I'm good. I can handle it. And since he's a drifter, he's just staying in the alley across the street from the restaurant. So that's how he witnesses all of this going on between Chumley Meatloaf and Fred Christopher Reeve. And he's like, oh, how the other half lives. We then see Fred go home. He's a little shaken up. He tells Irma that Chumley came by, he promises it's not as bad as, as she thinks it is. But clearly we all saw what happened. They go into the restaurant the next day. He's expecting the law to get involved. That's when local cop Phil Farley, Art LaFleur, he shows up and informs them that Chumley is missing. When Fred asks, you know, 
well, I should say at that point, he says, I need something to eat. I'm even willing to eat squid because that's the restaurant they own is just a squid menu. Uh, and that's when all of a sudden Judd Nelson is like, well, you know, I see there are two fresh steaks in the freezer. I don't know where these came from, but why don't you know what's this? And that's when Gaston is like, oh, hey, I wanted to surprise you all with this barbecue recipe that I had mentioned to you all in the past. I think, you know, this would be good for the restaurant. Farley tries the steak, enjoys them, uh, and is like, okay. And as that's going on, the smell of the steaks cooking is uh, is getting out of the restaurant, and there are a couple more people starting to come in, starting to come in, starting to come in. It's when Gaston's like, yeah, it's just an old family recipe, you know, this and that. Oh, you know, a couple herbs, a couple this, a couple that. And... As the customers are coming in, Fred notices that Gaston has Chumley's handkerchief, suspects he might have something to do with his disappearance. Fred accuses him of it. Gaston claims not to have, even going as far as saying he did him a favor with those steaks. Fred apologizes. That's when they have to open the freezer because so many people are coming in. They need more steaks up front. And that is when you see Chumley is hanging uh, in the freezer on a meat hook and Gaston proceeds to take a butcher knife and just starts hacking off part of the meat. And you realize that Gaston's being harvested for his meat. Fred is just absolutely blown away by this. About to faint is like, I have to tell people. I have to go tell the cops about this. And he's like, really? You're going to tell the cops that your landlord who you had an argument with is just hanging in your in your freezer and you had nothing to do with it. Oh, and then your wife cooked his meat and served it to guests. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. So pretty much is like blackballing him uh, and bl- blackballing, blackmailing him and, and is like, you're not telling anybody and this is going to be great. They make bank off of selling Chumley's body as steak as steak at the restaurant But at the end of the day, he's completely hacked away, so they need more humans. And that's when Gaston's like, don't worry, I'll harvest the humans. You're fine. Just go to this. Just a 50-50 of the profits is fine. He'll say that, you know, he won't tell anybody this would be great. Uh, Irma comes out. They celebrate with champagne. The next day, business is booming. More customers flying in for the meat. Uh And that's when Fred tries a little piece of the meat as well. He finds that he actually enjoys the taste as much as his customers do, but still feels guilty about the whole, you know, murder thing. Uh, Farley comes in mostly for the steak, but also to inform them that the police have found an uh, alloy from the scene of Chumley's disappearance, saying it was from a knife. Very few use anymore. He's checking purchase records of who would buy that. That prompts some fear in Fred because he's the only one that uses knives like that in his restaurant. So he knows that they'll link it back to him after they rake in another uh, $7,857. Irma thinks about expanding when she goes to tell Fred Gaston steals her gun from her purse. When she tells him the good news, Fred racked with guilt, indifferent, which causes her to go home. Fred tells Gaston that Phil may be on the, onto them. He's not really swayed. He thinks they should just kill the cop and cook him next. That's not something Superman's going to go with. So he disagrees mainly due to the consequences of, you know, that, uh, Gaston goes to Irma to confess 
about the killings, but he pins the whole thing on Fred. So now you see his game plan is starting to what his long end game was. All right, I'm going to pin this all on Fred. I'm going to get his wife. Bada bing, bada boom. We made some money. I got some money as well. I got the girl. Oh, yeah. Uh, and he says that Fred is going to kill himself with Irma's gun. So Irma goes, checks her purse, finds the gun's missing. Gaston claims that he's going to try to talk to Fred and get him to not do what he's doing. Uh, she should call Farley. Gaston enters the restaurant armed, but Fred gets the drop on him. Then there's a struggle between Gaston and him. Uh, he get, Gaston gains the upper hand until someone walks in. It's Irma. She's armed with a cleaver, ready to defend Fred. Gaston's like, what the hell? So he tries to shoot her because he's now got the gun intending to make it look like a murder-suicide. He's like, this is even better than I than I than I imagine. So, you know, now he's kind of like, eh, I don't really want the girl anymore. Uh, but that's when he finds out uh, something that only Irma and Fred know that Gaston does not know. She has the gun, but Fred will not let her put any bullets in the gun. So it's more for show. So the gun, no bullets in it. As you see, I got an email as well during the show, but no, no bullets for it. Uh, Irma was on to him the second he mentioned that. So she gave a call to Fred. Fred knew he was coming. They still called Farley. He arrives. So Gaston's like, oh, baby, I'm off the hook. He's like, look at this. Look at look, look. you walked in perfect time. These two murderers that have been cooking people, feeding them. They're about to do it to me. However, Farley instead claims that, well, I've developed a taste for that food. And that's this business. So I'm going to help them. And also in the process, by helping them, that's going to help me make a little extra cash for early retirement. So the episode ends with Farley, Fred, and Irma cooking Gaston alive as he screams uh, or being heard from outside the restaurant. Uh, outside Gaston's name on the neon sign burns out as well because he was now 50-50 partners. He wanted in on that because, you know, he was doing his thing. Uh, so, yeah, just a fun episode all around. Uh, again, the cast is stellar. The episode is so... I, I don't want to call it twisty twisty and all of that. It's it's not a big mystery like the other one. Like when we were talking about um, Beauty Rest earlier on in the episode. Like that one had a little bit of a we don't really know where this is going. This one's pretty straightforward of where it's kind of going. What its actual subject matter is. You know, it's cannibalism. There's all the moving parts are there from the beginning. It's not a things are unfolding as we go. I mean, things always unfold as we go. But it's a it's a lot more straightforward than the previous one. And again, watching Christopher Reeve in this, seeing Judd Nelson, Art LaFleur, like it is such a mind f this episode with its cast, its story. It is absolutely one of my favorite episodes. I remembered like when I started watching it, I was like. Oh yeah, this is what the, I was like, this is the, I was like, I love this episode so much that this is like, I remembered the exact wording at the ending with the whole fire it up when, when, when LaFleur tells him to fire up the oven because he wants them to cook gas up. Like I legit remembered the ending line to this episode. I was like, oh yeah, this is the episode where it ends with the fire it up and then they throw him on the grill and it's like, yep, there it is. So one of my favorites, just 
this is one to revisit whenever you get a chance to, to watch as many times as you can, because again, you're getting uh, just a fun acting performance. People with like watching Christopher Reeve not be Superman and playing the owner of a restaurant that a diner that starts to go cannibalistic and is cooking people and becomes totally okay with cooking people. Holy crap. Like that is fun. That is a fun episode. Uh, do want to mention the opening segment? Saw the Crypt Keeper uh, actually torturing Wolfgang. Uh, he says, next time I book a table for 8 o'clock, Wolfgang, I expect to be seated at 8 o'clock. Uh, yes, a good wine. Not a great wine, but locally grown, that's for sure, because he's using a corkscrew to twist out Wolfgang's eye. Uh, that's how he introduces us to the episode. Uh, saying it's a real Epigorean delight about a nice young couple who find the restaurant business a little hard to swallow. Uh, introduce the fine dining of what's cooking. And then the closing se- uh, segment was, I suppose it's a little too late for Gaston to save face. Talk about a flesh in the pan. I guess that's what happens when you put your money where your mouth is. As for me, kitties, I say it's time for tops. Mmm, till next time. Restaurateur in peace. Uh, yeah, so even even the puns, I mean, the puns are always great with the Crypt Keeper. This is a show where you watch the intro every time. You even watch the outro until the HBO logo pops up because the Danny Elfman score is iconic. The puppet thing is iconic. Uh, John, John's improving of the jokes, iconic. Uh, some trivia for this episode. Uh, it was the highest rated episode of the series on IMDb. Uh, also, Fred and Irma's neon sign has seen better days. Letters are burnt out. So all that was left is E-N-E-M-A-S. And a great moment in this episode. I actually had to rewind it. I forgot this, but it plays into the Superman thing. At one point, Fred's wife... Irma mentions that the Daily Bugle food critic is there to her husband and the fictional newspaper is the one Peter Parker worked for in the Spider-Man comic book series. So, like, I thought it was funny that you have Superbad in a show in Tales from the Crypt and then Tales from the Crypt is like, oh, yeah, by the way, uh, the MCU uh, exists in our universe. So, yeah, there you go. The Daily Bugle is in Tales from the Crypt, is in this episode. The Daily Bugle is in three different Spider-Man movies. Those three different Spider-Man movies all crossed over into one Spider-Man movie, which ties it all into the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Earth 616. So Tales from the Crypt exists, and uh, somewhere out there, there is a cannibalistic restaurant uh, near the daily, within the range of the Daily Bugle that Spider-Man has not stopped from happening yet. Uh, so there you have it, the crossover event that will one day come, the Crypt Keeper versus Spider-Man. And that's the content you only get on the Throw Me Podcast Network's Patreon page. Thank you guys for hanging out in the Crypt of Horror. We'll be back next month, two new episodes. We're going to moosey on over to episode number seven, The New Arrival. Uh, And then we will really mosey on over to episode number eight, uh, Showdown. That makes sense for the moseying, right? Right? Uh, And also getting really excited because uh, we're getting so much closer to Brad Pitt's episode. We're getting closer to uh, one of the 
actors who portrayed James Bond being on the show as well. Like season four, again, season three, I talked about it. Like that's where you really start to blow up with the guest appearances. But I think by season four, you really have like this show became the home for I want to go and do something fun. So I'm going to do that for young actors trying to be seen for established actors and actresses, Mimi Rogers, Bess Armstrong, Art LaFleur, Meatloaf, Judd Nelson, like Christopher Reeve, none of them that need Tales from the Crypt, but are like, hell yeah, I want to go do that. Go and do that. So uh, there's a Joe Pesci episode on the way as well this season. So yeah, it's really uh, a great time to be back in the Crypt of Horror, and I'm so happy to be here with you all. So until next time. <laughs>